My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I'm one of the pastors here, and often one of the ones who are up here to explain a text of the Bible. And this morning, I'm going to do that with Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 8. So if you can find your way there, or you can follow along on the screen that I'm going uh, to read to you about uh, 11 or so verses. So it's Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 8, just to give you a context because you're going to come into the middle of a conversation. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark was the first of the Gospels written. And uh, most of the material that you will find in the Gospel of Mark, you will find in the other uh, three Gospels because it was first. And they drew off of Mark's. Most people believe that Peter uh, is the true author of Mark. That is, Mark uh, wrote down information he had got from the Apostle Peter, who was present during all the things that are being described. The most common word in uh, the Gospel, according to Mark, is and. Therefore, it's a, the Gospel of Mark, when you read it, is a lot like a Jason Bourne movie. It's in tremendous motion all the time. Because, and Jesus said this, and Jesus did that, and Jesus said this, and that's why you see all those ands, is because he's hearing Peter tell these stories and the, give these teachings, and he's writing it down, and the common word is chi or and. So having uh, said that, we're in the middle here, and it says, And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. May God help us understand this, his word. This is our second uh, a series on the gospel. And last fall, we looked at gospel identity. And this fall, we began, this winter, we began with gospel growth. And we'll be doing that for the next uh, 10 weeks of messages and for those who are in Renew Groups. And we encourage everyone in our church to be in a Renew Group to uh, begin to unpack this for themselves and for others in a group. If you are a follower of Jesus, how do we grow? 
as Christians? What's the one thing that we must have in order to grow spiritually, to mature? In Galatians, Paul answers that question for us clearly so that there's no debate. He's going to illustrate it in this text, but he's going to clearly identify that in a letter that Paul wrote to Galatians. And so I'm just going to read you those three verses where he answers that question for us. Back in Galatians chapter 3, verse uh, uh, 1, just give you a quick context here. Uh, Paul is, uh, is writing to a group of churches that he planted in Galatia, which is a region of the Roman Empire. And after he is gone, some other teachers have come to these churches and have begun to teach uh, an antithetical understanding of Christianity, how people grow. That is, they taught that you were, yes, the gospel saves you, but you grow by the law, by the keeping of the law. And because you can't keep it perfectly, God's standard is that you just do the best you can. Well, this is Paul's answer to that kind of teaching. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? What Paul is teaching here plainly is that faith saves us and it's the same faith that grows us. That it's not one thing to come into the kingdom of God and then another thing to stay there. Paul is saying that we grow by faith. This morning, I want to, before we unpack Mark 8, I do want to give us two images or two illustrations to help us understand these truths. And I think it will help us understand how we grow. And then I'll give you the three truths that I think this text teaches and unpack them not only this morning, but over the next uh, 10 weeks. The first illustration comes from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. If you have never read those books, have never seen the movie, that's okay. What I'm going to give you is a point I think that C.S. Lewis brings out in these books. Narnia is a magical place. It's a place where boys and girls become kings and queens. It is a place where animals talk. Narnia is also a very broken place. It is always winter, but never Christmas. There is a witch who has cursed the land and frozen everything. But Aslan is on the move. Aslan is the Christ figure in the Narnia tales in which C.S. Lewis is explaining how the gospel spreads and changes everything and makes all things new. For his power, Aslan's power, is beginning to thaw Narnia. And at the end of the series, there are seven books. At the last one, it's called the, the, the Last Battle. His followers enter Aslan's land. And as they come in, Aslan cries out to them and, and, and beckons them to come further up and further in. The reason I use that is this is how Christians grow. We move further up and further in God's grace by faith. We encourage one another to move further up and further in God's amazing grace by faith. 
This is exactly what Jesus is doing in Mark 8 with his disciples. He's beckoning them to move further up and further in God's grace through faith. The second illustration is the one that I'm going to put on the screen here about the gospel pipeline. That is, one way to understand how we move further up and further in is through this illustration of a gospel pipeline. Let me do that and then I'll walk us through the text to show it. The entry point of the gospel pipeline is seeing your need for grace. The very beginning that all of us at some point in order to be Christians had to come to an understanding that we needed grace. And then secondly, the second stage is not only did we see our need for grace by seeing our sin, but we also began to learn to trust and to hope in this grace to cover our sin. So the very first part is we see our sin and that's where we all have this in common. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And then secondly, to see that God's grace is sufficient to cover our sin. And then thirdly, we have areas that still need transformation, ongoing change. But the same grace that showed us our sin, the same grace that covered our sin, also transforms those areas by faith. And then the last stage of this whole idea of the gospel pipeline is that we're so freed by grace, through faith, that we're able to deny ourselves and serve Christ, particularly in spreading the gospel of grace, though not perfectly. We are always going through these four stages. That is, there's not a point where you master seeing your sin, you master God's coverage of our sin, You master and therefore have no rough edges that need to come under grace or you have learned how to die to yourself. That is, you're constantly going back to different parts as the Holy Spirit exposes things that are going on in our lives, in our community, here at EP, in the greater community of Annapolis and beyond in the whole world, that we're constantly coming back to the pipeline at different stages. Not only are all of us at at different stages, but we never stay in the stage. We're constantly moving within the pipeline. We recognize that God has raised up EP for the last 54 years and probably until he tarries and returns to guide people to further up and further in this gospel. How does that work? We believe. We have faith. But faith in what? That's the question. And this text reveals three truths that if we believe them, if we truly believe them, then we grow in grace through faith. And therefore, each of these truths will result in joy. Something that we Christians aren't always known for. If you have been around EP for a long time, you've heard these three truths. Use it as a refresher because they never get old. They get more beautiful. 
they get more life-giving. But if you're new to EP, allow them to reveal to you what God so much wants you to taste and to touch and to feel. And for anyone that's in this room, it will help because it is God's grace. It's what led John Newton to write Amazing Grace. He saw his incredible sin, not only of how he harmed himself, but how he harmed others, including the the horrible transatlantic slave trade. And as he showed him, he, he, he saw how amazing God's grace was to cover those sins. And so that's why he writes, I once was dead, but now alive. I was blind, but now I see. And so the very first truth from Mark 8, I want you to see. But more importantly, I want you to believe. I want to believe. Is cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think. I'm not being flippant about sin. In fact, I believe the more you understand grace, the more seriously you will take sin. One of the reasons that I think people are so flippant about the seriousness of hurting yourself and hurting others is because we don't understand the need for grace. It's just an additive. It's just out there. It's just a a theory. It's just an idea that churches talk about all the time, but never connect it to our need. So the more we understand what Christ has done for us, the more serious that we will take sin. That's my experience anyway. Do you all know what the first word the gospel is? Think about it. If you go to Mark 1, John the Baptist utters the first word of the gospel. And then when John in in Mark 1 goes to prison, Jesus' first utterance of the gospel is the same words. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But the first word is repent. And this is the entry point into the gospel pipeline. God graciously and mercifully, tenderly exposes our sin. Now think about it. How many in this room has seen and knows all the sin that they've ever done? There's no one. Even if you became a monk or a nun and you went off to live in a monastery to do nothing but think about your sin. That's what... Martin Luther did before he became a Christian. That was his life. So much so that his priest said, quit coming, you're coming to confess too often. You're wearing me out. We would still never know it all. And so by the Holy Spirit, by grace, God reveals that by degree. Because if he showed us all of our sin at one time, even those of you who believe your spouse or friend constantly has a list of all the things you've done wrong. They don't know half of it. And you don't know the other half. And that's grace that you don't. Because it would crush us. We know enough to say what Isaiah says. I am ruined. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's enough. But that's the beginning point. Grace will never be precious to us unless we see our need for it. One of the common questions that I get from visitors is after they've been here a while, they want to know why we talk so much about sin at EP. My answer goes like this, because if the bad news is not really bad, then the good news is not really that good. Only if the news is that bad about us would it ever warrant God to come into this world. Think about it. How bad do things have to get before the Creator comes back into His creation to fix what has happened to the creation? It has to be pretty bad. And that's why we talk about it, because the more we talk about that, the more precious and beautiful and good and true is what Christ has done to fix it, to cover it. Look at verse 27. Who do people say I am? Jesus is leading his disciples through the beginning of that gospel pipeline. And they come back to Jesus and they say, some call you John the Baptist. And others say, you're Elijah. And others... You're one of the prophets. Have you ever asked yourself this question when you read that verse, assuming that you've read it at some time, but if you haven't, maybe this is the very first time, and you're asking this question, why would they think he was a prophet? In fact, the Bible presents Jesus as the last prophet. Why would they think that Jesus is at least a prophet? Well, it's because he's fulfilling the things that they thought and were demonstrated by the office or the role of a prophet. What's the role of the prophet? If you go back and you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, the the role of the prophet is simply to rebuke the people for straying away from God. That's what Isaiah and Jeremiah were doing in those passages because the people of God had strayed away from God and ended up in exile and they were rebuking the way back to God. Not just back to a, a physical land, but a way back to God is through repentance. Seeing your need. Revealing their sin and, their, and God's holiness to them. We'll talk about that more next week. Why did the prophets do this? They didn't do it because they're cosmic killjoys. They see you out there having a good time and they don't want you to have one. Because Christians don't have a good time. Christians are those people who are so narrow-minded that they can look through a keyhole with both eyes. That's not what the prophet does. He's not a killjoy. They're not trying to ruin your good time. They're trying to get you... To see that the true lover of your soul is Jesus Christ and he wants you to come to him to receive grace. This role was to get people to see their need for grace. Verse 38, you and I are all part of this adulterous and sinful generation. Being called out to see Our adultery, adultery is where we were intended for someone or something else. 
And we have changed that in and cheated on that someone. Every sin is an unfaithfulness to our true husband, Jesus Christ. Do you see what David will say in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned? That's not even true. Not if you take it in its literal sense. Bathsheba and Uriah would beg to differ. Especially Uriah. But he's saying in priority of worth of the being. Our relationship with God is so special. He loves us as his creatures in his image. And every time we sin, we're saying that to you, God. We're flipping him a bird. We're wishing that we had a different God. Therefore, we need to see that. I think this explains in a lot of ways why so many Christians, so many of us, beat ourselves up by our sin. You see, we tend to think that people beat themselves up about their sin because they take sin too seriously. I think it proves that we take sin too lightly. Because if we truly took sin seriously, we would recognize that there's nothing we can do. And therefore, we need someone else to give us grace. Someone else to take care of our sin. To enter that gospel pipeline, Christ must lead us to the place where we see our need for grace. That we need to repent. But not just for things that we have done, but for the things that we try to do. That is, we want to do good things, but why do we want to do those good things? We don't need to just repent of the wrong things we do, but even the motivation for the things that we want to do right. Because somehow we think that God will be, will be more acceptable to Him. He'll love us more. It'll make up for all the bad things that we have done. The problem with me is that I'm too proud. I'm too self-centered. I'm too self-sufficient. And therefore, it's very hard to see that my real problem isn't what I do. It's why I do what I do. If I shoot for changing my behavior, you can do that without Jesus. There are plenty of religions that show that they're more moral than we are. There are plenty of philosophies in life where people seem to be, in one sense, addicted to something, and then they get out of that addiction without Jesus. You don't need Jesus to change your behavior. But if you want to change your heart, only the Holy Spirit can do that. So cheer up. You're worse than you think. You're worse than your wife thinks. You're worse than your children think. You're worse than your neighbors think. But most of all, you're worse than you think. And if that news is that bad, here's where it's the source of joy then it must mean the good news is that much better. If the news is that bad, then the good news must be better. And it is. Which brings us to the second one. Cheer up. The gospel is more incredible than you can imagine. Look at the second question that's asked in verse 29. But Jesus turns to his disciples and says, But who do you say I am? And Peter, who typically speaks up for everyone, is doing it again. And he, and he says, you are the Christ. 
You and I need to be constantly reminded of who Jesus Christ is. That's why Robert Murray Machane, who was an old preacher a long time ago, used to say, you take one look at your sin, but then you turn and take ten looks at what Christ has done for us. He's not just our prophet. He is our prophet. He's always calling us to repentance. Always showing our sin by degree, but that's not all he does. He's also gracious enough to reveal the grace that is necessary to cover our sin. Jesus is also our Savior who does something about our sin. The gospel pipeline does not end with seeing sin. That's depressing. The beginning is to see that our sin, but then seeing that all the grace that is necessary to cover the sin. This becomes a kind of a strange window into joy. Because of that infinite grace We've been forgiven. Don't count that too lightly. One way I know that I am uh, looking at forgiveness too lightly is because I don't look at the depth and horror of the sin. When you do that, you appreciate the forgiveness. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shame and guilt... And fear, the things that whether it is has defined you, it has defined me, has been finally dealt a fatal blow. Jesus covered my shame, Jesus removed my guilt, and Jesus replaced my fear with love. And then God accepted me. I am as acceptable now as I will ever be. You, if you're in Christ... God will not increase His love or His acceptance of you than He already does. Then He brings you into a family. God's family. He adopts us into the family. And in order to give you a a little taste of that, He wants you to look past your immediate physical family. Because your immediate physical family, for most of us, looks just like us. In a lot of ways, thinks like us. Now, look around the room. You see people in this room come from different cultures, have spoken different languages, from different parts of our country and think differently than we do. And he says, that's how big my family that I've put you in. The way he puts it in the Bible language, he says, in my family... There are people from every tribe, people, and tongue in this world. And that gives you a much bigger understanding of the family in which we are part of. And the only place that we taste and touch it, where we get the appetizer, is right here in this room. The neat thing about EP is you get to taste it again if you come back at 11. Or if you came earlier at 8. How did Jesus accomplish that? How could Jesus do all of that? He tells us in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he rises again. What he's saying is, my life was for you in your stead, the life you should have lived. My death was for you in your place, the death you should have died. And my resurrection is the first fruits of your resurrection. I give you a new life to live. You and I aren't orphans. 
We're family. And the head of our family is our Father in heaven. Our husband is Jesus Christ. In a dog-eat-dog world, orphans have to look out for themselves in order to survive. And God says that's what we once were. We don't have to live hoarding, wanting, and being greedy anymore. How many of us still live that way as orphans, even though we are in a family? Jesus is providing the sufficient grace and moving us further up and further in. Last, and it's because you believe the first two. If you believe it, that you are worse than you think, and and God by grace is showing you that by degree, and if you believe that His grace is sufficient, what Christ has done is covered you up. That is, the gospel is more than you can imagine because it'll spend, we'll spend eternity trying to understand all the things that Christ has done for us, the riches of the benefits of the gospel. Then this last call, this last truth to believe is possible. But if we don't believe the first two, this one is impossible. Cheer up. Come and die. Imagine if the Marines use that slogan, come and die. Nobody joins. Why? They know it's a possibility. And maybe even a probability for many, but not them. It's not a slogan that would work well. But that's exactly what God says, that if you have been saved by me, if you are in the family of God, I beg you to come and die. You see that in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I just want you to understand, just so briefly, the cross in the ancient world was a symbol of death. Crosses didn't come into the church until the Middle Ages because the church viewed the cross as an instrument of death that killed their Savior. And then when they decided to start producing crosses and put him in churches, they made them crucifixes. They left Jesus on the cross. It was during the Protestant Reformation that they took the Jesus off the cross because the cross is the symbol for us that we come and die. That's when churches put it in to the buildings to remind everyone in here, this is not just how the Savior went, This is how we all must go if we're following him. The gospel pipeline begins with God revealing our sin. But then secondly, it shows you that we can rest and hope because his grace can cover our sin. And then thirdly, he gives us sufficient grace to change. I know these truths are incredibly hard to get your mind around because of the implications. Not that they're incredible but because of the implications that if I believe them. This summer, uh, my family got all of the kids and grandkids and we went to the beach and this house that we rented had a, a, a swimming pool. It was right on the beach, but it also had a swimming pool and it had a hot tub. My guess is people go in the wintertime. My two little girls' favorite place was what they called the hot pool. They wanted in and out, in and out, in and out. And they demonstrate the way Christians are supposed to live. 
we are a hot tub on Sunday morning. That we're hopping in. And at some point, you're just being... Re, re, God is just through His work of His Holy Spirit revealing to you your sin. And that's all He's doing right now. Is that you're recognizing for the very first time you're worse than you imagined. And you hop out. And next Sunday, you might come in and hop in and He's going to reveal to you that He covered that sin. And you're going to need to stay in there a while to understand all the implications of what it means to be bought by Christ. And then you're going to hop out. And it's going to be weeks later, you hop back in and in a worship service and He reveals to you an area of your life that He would like to change into the image of Christ by grace, through faith. And you're going to have to stay in that hot tub for a while to think that through. And then you're going to hop out. And then you're going to hear some message on some Sunday morning where you're being asked to come and die to your preferences, to your priorities, to your dreams, to your hopes, to your plans, and to put God's priorities and God's preferences first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these things will be added. And that's going to take a while. Because who wants to come and die? I want what I want and Jesus. And Jesus says, you may not get what you want, but you get me, which is far better than what anything you want. And that's going to take some hot tub experience. That's what we are for one another. Not just what's set up here, but what's going on out there. We're a hot tub and we're constantly hopping in and hopping out. I just want you to know that this pipeline that is up here, it's not linear. And it's not uh, a single progression, but many. You're constantly hopping further back and further up. But overall, you're moving further in and further up. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. We are called to actively engage in losing our lives for the sake of the kingdom. He's not talking about martyrdom, although some might die for their faith. But most of it, he's simply saying, what's your plan? What's your priorities? What are your preferences? And have you ever put the kingdom first? You ever put the Lord first? And that might change everything about your preferences. But, or simply you're willing to not have your preferences fulfilled. In order that the kingdom expands. In order that the kingdom value is known. We know it's impossible for you to do that. It's impossible for me to do that. That's why it's a work of the Holy Spirit by grace. Through faith. Which is the last stage of the gospel pipeline. That's why Paul will say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live. You hear the priorities and preferences. And plans and desires. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That wasn't, though he stated that, that wasn't perfectly a description of Paul's life. But that is what we're all hoping to have in ours. As it was in his. And so we're at a midterm exam. I know you hate exams and you think you're past them. But you have a midterm exam this morning.
Are we being renewed by the gospel? And we will we seek the renewal of Annapolis and from here the world. Will we talk about grace? Will we just make it something we talk about a lot here? But it can't just be talk. If we're ever going to be about the kingdom. Does our grace bid us to come and die to ourselves, our preferences, our priorities for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? If not, it's something, but it is not grace. Look at verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for a soul? The first question is nothing. It profits you nothing. And then secondly, you have nothing in exchange for your life. So let's all continue to move further up and further in. Let's all encourage one another to keep moving further up and further in by grace through faith. Because Aslan is on the move. And because Aslan is on the move... You can cheer up. You're worse than you think. Because Aslan is on the move, you can cheer up. Because the gospel is more than you can imagine. And because Aslan is on the move, you can cheer up because he's bid you to come and die. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of standing here. First, to hear the word to my own heart. And then to give it to your people that we all might grow in grace. That we all might move further up and further in by faith. That we call one another, particularly as we struggle in this life, to do this very thing. That we might be known as a place in our community that people can come and jump in the hot tub of the gospel. And by your spirit, be transformed into the image of Christ. Father, allow us to say no to ourselves, to our preferences, to our priorities, in light of the advancement of your kingdom and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.